Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Home Remedies has already earned some fantastic praise. Lauren Groff calls it artful, funny, generous, and empathetic. Adam Johnson writes that Wang has the dark soul of an old poet's inkwell and the deep knowing of an ancient remedy and the linguistic incandescence of a megacity skyline. Gary Steingart calls these stories tasty little bits of perfection, one of the great debuts of the year. Xian Juliana Wang's long list of literary awards and honors include fellowships at McDowell, Yaddo, and Breadloaf, as well as a Pushcart Prize. In her 20s, Juliana lived in Beijing and worked as a Chinese-English translator and fixer during the 2008 Olympics, an experience that informed and inspired many of these stories. Uh, she recently moved out of a 270-square-foot apartment in Chinatown, Manhattan, and is now back in California, where she teaches at UCLA. Justin Torres has published short fiction in The New Yorker, Harper's, Granta, Tin House, The Washington Post, and other publications, as well as nonfiction pieces in publications like The Guardian and The Advocate. Justin's novel, We the Animals, has been translated into 15 languages and was recently adapted into a film. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and was nominated for five Independent Spirit Awards. He lives in Los Angeles, where he is an assistant professor of English, also at UCLA. We're incredibly fortunate to have them with us this evening. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Xian, Juliana Wang, and Justin Torres. I've been looking forward to this my whole life. Um, I, I, I love this bookstore. Thank you, Dylan, for that introduction. I uh, used, This is the first place I drove to when I got a car, um, this, this bookstore. And I used to come here and touch all the books. And when I moved back from New York, this I just tried to move closer to this bookstore so I can come and touch books regularly and listen to um, Listen to conversations like this. It's like such a it's such an honor, and so many people in my life is here. My parents for <laughs> videotaping, uh, and then uh, my husband who made those really well constructed totes, <laughs> and uh, my professors like David Roman, and um, you know at USC that was just the best education I got um, as a writer. Um, T.C. Boyle, Amy Bender, Carol Muskie Dukes, they were so instrumental to everything I have and uh, they used to take us to readings here. So I'm so honored to be here with my students who were born in 1998, um, <laughs> stare at them. And uh, um, so I feel like I just wanna, um, I can see the whole trajectory of my 20s in this book, which looks like this. Um, it took me 10 years to write it it's broken, it's 12 stories broken up into three sections. Um, the first section is called family. And because in my 
early 20s, I was concerned about family and the breakup of family and what makes a family and chosen families. And by my mid-20s, I was more concerned about love and heartbreak and disappointments and those of mine and my friends, some of whom are here, and it's all we were talking about. And the last section is called time and space because as I got into my early 30s, I had like bigger philosophical questions about life and real things became more surreal and realism didn't seem like it was enough and life got weirder and darker and so did the writing. So I hope to read a little bit from each section and then um, we can talk about it. And also today I dug up these emails that I had written to myself in the future and I'm gonna read some because they're hilarious. Uh, okay, and first, I'm gonna take a photo of you guys, okay? For my... Wow, okay, smile. Thank you. So, the first story, um, as this comes from the family section. Uh, I wrote this story after I had been living in Beijing for two years. Um, you know, working as a translator. It also was a period of my life where I regularly woke up at four in the afternoon and I was totally okay with it. So infer from that what you will. It's called Days of Being Mild. We are what the people called Beipiao, a term coined to describe the 20-somethings who drift aimlessly to the northern capital, a phenomenal tumble of new faces to Beijing. We are the generation who awoke to consciousness, listening to rock and roll, who fed ourselves milk, McDonald's, and box sets of friends. We are not our parents with their loveless marriages and party assigned jobs, and we are out to prove it. We come with uncertain dreams, but our goal is to burn white hot, to prove that the Chinese too can be decadent and reckless. We're not good at math or saving money, but we are very good at being young. We're like May 4th era superstars, only now we have math books. We've read Kerouac in translation. We are marginally employed and falling behind on our filial piety payments, but we are cool, and who is going to tell us otherwise? Five of us live in a reconverted pencil factory outside of the fourth ring, smack in the middle of 798 Art District. We call our place the fish tank, and it covers 400 meters of brick and semi-exposed wall insulation. Before it became our home, it used to function as the women's showers for the factory workers. As a result, it is cheap and it is damp. The real Beijing, with its post-Olympic skyscrapers and miles of shopping malls, rests comfortably in the distance, where we can glance fondly at the glow of lights while eating chore. I'm just gonna skip around. Tonight, we all go clubbing in San Litor at a place called Fiona. A once famous French architect purportedly designed it in an hour. Every piece of furniture is unique, and as a result, it looks like a junkyard. Rainbow, an old acquaintance who runs a foreign modeling agency, is throwing a birthday party for herself. Can you believe I'm 20, turning 29 again, she says, as a greeting while she ushers it into her private room. She kisses everyone on the mouth and presses tiny pills into our hands. Oh, to be young and charming. I can't think of anything more fabulous. 
she says in her sig signature mixture of Chinese and English, as she drapes her arm around a new model boyfriend. His name is Kenny, or Benny, and he looks like a skinny Hugh Jackman. He is obviously a homosexual, but that's just not something Rainbow has to accept. <laughs> the DJ spins Funky House, and the springboard dance floor floods with sweaty people who pant and paw each other. Old businessmen drool at foreign girlfriends who lift up their skirts on elevated cages. Rainbow buys the drinks and toasts herself into oblivion. I can't find Gonza or Benji, so I try striking up a conversation with the skinny Hugh Jackman. He asked me to teach him Chinese, so I start by pointing to the items on the table. This is a bowl, I say. A bowl, a bowl, he says, with a shit-eating grin on his face. Shot glass, I push it across the table towards him. Shout place, he slurs, laughing. Oh yeah, shout place. It's a good thing he's handsome, I think. I want to leave, but I'm too high to wonder to look, for, to look for my friends. I stick by the bar for a bit, and I talk to the attractive waitresses who swear they've met me before in another city, in another life, and, I'm, and I am sad that they have nothing to say to me but lies. Beijing is a city that is alive and growing. At any given moment, people are feasting on the streets, studying for exams, singing ballads in KTVs, Somewhere, a woman with a modest salary is buying 10,000 yuan pans from Chloe to prove her worth. Even though I couldn't cut it in, at the Beijing Film Academy, I knew the city itself was for me. The dinosaur bones found underneath shopping malls, the peony gardens, the enclaves of art, these things were all exhilarating. I walk through new commercial complexes constructed at Guomao, which look at, one, look at once like big awkward gangsters gawking at one another, as if hesitant to offer each other cigarettes. And I think, I belong here. Tonight, somehow, I end up crawling out of a cab to throw up by the side of the freeway. Traffic swirls around me, even though the morning light's not even fully up. Then, out of the blue, my friends Sarah and Benji appear, apparently because they happen to see my big head projectile vomiting as their cab was passing. They pat me on the back, and we eat hot pot on the side of the road from an old, old Xinjiang lady. I'm so happy to be with them. It is at this moment I realize that what's going on is already slipping away, and while the cool air blows against my damp face in the taxi home, I can't help but miss it all already. Okay, I'll stop there for that one. Thank you. Um, the second story comes from the uh, love section. It's called Home Remedies for Non-Life-Threatening Ailments. So I, um, as a, uh, many children of immigrants, I watched a lot of TV by myself after school, and I loved pharmaceutical commercials. They were my favorite. I looked forward to them every time uh, because it was so soothing. It was like every problem I never knew existed could be solved, but not fully. There would be side effects. <laughs> Uh, and but just the idea of that was so nice that I tried to write a story for the, you know, unsolvable problems in life. I'm just gonna read like, like a few. Most of them are about sadness. So, <laughs> problem, bilingual heartache, from someone breaking your heart in a foreign language. It is like regular heartache, but somehow it's painful in a creative new way. Solution. 
Pray that a painful cold sore appears on your face so you can instead wallow in self-pity. Problem, self-pity. A byproduct of the chronic dissatisfaction with your wide and interesting face. Solution, get your nails done by a 17-year-old Vietnamese girl who probably weighs as much as one of your thighs. After she puts your hands in a bowl of smelly water, she rubs lotion into your fingers. She looks up at your face and says, your hands are so white and soft. You never do any housework, do you? Open your mouth to protest as if she were your mother, and then, then lower your head and agree. She guessed correctly. Um, sadness, general sadness, problem, sadness, general sadness about the fertility of life. Drink. Uh, yeah, I'll just stop there. We can, you guys could read that one if you would like. Thank you. So the the last story, um, I have been reading. Um, I've been reading a lot on the road uh, this week, and I've been reading the same stories. And this time, I wanted to try something different. So the last story in the collection is called The Art of Straying Off Course. Basically, I am uh, married to an architect, and as a result, he has filled my head with garbage. <laughs> uh, not garbage, but architectural terminology. And uh, so I needed to do something with all of this, these terms. So I wrote a story about a woman who builds buildings her entire life, and then eventually has to build buildings in space. But this is uh, just a section of that story. Time slowed down to the slowest seconds. I stood in the room of my first steps, my first words, but the distance grew in oblique directions. I sat down on the bed and shrugged off my coat and watched my right hand holding my left hand, turning around some invisible orb as if to wash the time away. The kite shop had become a restaurant after the park became a road. Before me, there was my mother and my mother's mother and hers before that. All these empty rooms filled with their voices, their wants and dreams, their hair falling everywhere. Strangers looked like, who looked like me walked by and threw their ragged shadows against newly erected walls changing the landscape day after day. Concrete and stone held my remembered paths in place, but with the rise and fall of the sun and moon, the beginning moved farther away still. This was all that's left. A gloriously crooked tree, once home to birds, named after a river that no longer flowed here. The birds were meant to fly, always and far away. In the future, my daughter and I will vacation in space. My daughters are elegant as wet swans, so tall they stoop slightly when they bend down to embrace me. Maybe Nadia will be a textile designer by then. Alina, a screenwriter for as long as she can withstand the blows. I avoid their melancholy eyes. I want so much for both of them to live carefree lives, but I tell them everything, and maybe everything is too much. It's a long drive to the hotel, the one on the very edge of the earth, the last step, the last stop to rest before we go interstellar, the last place we've never been. In the car, we wrap ourselves in woolen blankets to keep warm. I reach over 
and check Nadia's cheek. I look at Alina asleep in the back seat, her hands clasped like a little girl's. Are you leaving or returning? Asked the young attendant behind glass. I point one finger to the direction ahead and he waves us through. The road leads us to the, a brutal glass-fronted facade, steel balconies cantilevering through clouds. There are no shadows in space, only the most perfect lines. Travertine steps, the height of sycamores, un unveil marble arches and colonnades. The columns surround a formal pool to reflect a dome. It is then that I feel the recognition run through my body. I've seen this place before, the hotel, the shuttle to space. Have I been here too? Behind me, through the window, all the places I'm trying to leave behind, all that wonderful chaos, horizontal, never ending. Thank you. Okay, and now I'm going to embarrass myself and read emails that I wrote to myself. Um, because I don't, uh, you know, like in our family, we should like to be humble. And uh, I don't want you guys to think that I, I feel really, like, all good or anything. So you can... <laughs> You can see what all I've been through. <laughs> so this was an email. Uh, so there's, a, there's an app called Future Me. And basically, it post-dates your emails to the future. You set it to however uh, long you want to send it to. This one was sent to myself um, in 2016. I wrote it in December 2nd, 2005. It says, Dear Future Me, are you a writer? I could tell that I could tell that I can reply to that email now, but it took even longer than ten years. <laughs> this one was written on my birthday in 2010. I sent it two years in the future. Dear future me, it's 2 a.m. and you are a newly minted 25-year-old, and you can't fall asleep. So much anxiety, so much uncertainty. <laughs> if somehow you've lost your way, know that today you want to devote yourself to writing. Also, I hope you have great hair and are not fat. <laughs> Smirkfully, you. It runs a gamut, these, these emails. This one was sent on November 2007. It was sent five years into the future. Dear future me, you've never felt so unnerved as you do this fall of 2007, fresh out of college, all sparkly-eyed and depressed and disappointing, but also energetic and running wild in Beijing. The you now is so worried about life. All this seemingly random and meaningless experience won't make you a writer. Writing makes you a writer. And the past you is allowing you a few more months of this, but then that's it. <laughs> Wake up with so much love and hope, you. And this was the first letter I wrote to myself. It's from June uh, 30th, 2004. Dear future me, did you ever make it out of USC? <laughs> Were you too scared? The you now thinks you'll simply give up. I really hope you slash I didn't. I hope you're sitting somewhere where it snows right now. NYC? Question mark. You and me, we're the same, and yet I hope we will be different. Thank you.
and, and then and uh, uh, Justin is, I've been looking up to Justin for like the, the all eight years I've known him, so this is a huge honor. Okay. Don't uh, be weird or anything. Hi, guys. Yeah, let's clap. Let's clap. So I, I'm kind of still in the, in the headspace of your future me emails. I wasn't expecting that. That was, <laughs> wow. You're so nice to yourself. It's so beautiful. Those are like anxiety letters, right? They're just like but they're so kind. <laughs> I was really impressed. Oh, thanks. Anyway, um, I love, 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 love this book. Julia and I were at um, Stanford together for two years, kind of after we did our MFAs, and we fell in love, and we, she cooked a lot for me and gave me lots of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And we bonded and bitched about everything. And, um, and I loved you. And then, of course, you're always a little bit nervous to read the book, you know? Yeah. And I loved it. I mean, I really, on, it's honestly oh, fantastic and remarkable. And you guys should run and purchase a copy as soon as we're done here. Um, and what I loved about it is that it is, is the range is just incredible. I mean, it goes from, it just kind of covers our globalized world in this amazing way and your access to characters who are recent Chinese immigrants of the lower class who've just arrived to the rich, the super rich Chinese millennials who are living in Beijing and who are mainlanders to people who are traveling back and forth and traversing that distance and trying to cover that gap. It's incredible. I mean, it's an incredible, you have incredible access. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about how the book came to be, mm -hmm. and I thought that maybe we would start by talking about language, because it seems like one of the things that kind of unites the pieces. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, I think um, I've just always, you know, when I was young, I, uh, I, I moved to the States when I was seven, and I learned to read um, one year later. And I remember, you know, like many of us, I found so much solace in books. But I, when I went to school, I realized I didn't know how to pronounce anything. Mm. Um, whenever we read out loud, ev I would st like everything would be wrong. I had no idea. I knew what the words meant, but I didn't know how to say them. And I think in the beginning, that started to make me very aware of language. I've always, there's like a cadence to sentences. I like to break down words to figure out what they mean. And I think in the same way, I, you know, Chinese was my mother tongue, but I forgot it you know, most of it. And I had to basically relearn it um, when I lived in China in my early 20s. And there was also this, it was a, like a part of my brain that wasn't used to being spoken to, was being like totally alive. And I loved li finding out what, why things meant this, the way they, uh, what they meant. Mm -hmm. So even in my writing now, I, uh, I like to translate back and forth. If I have a boring description in English, I'll translate into Chinese and then s translate it back. And it's usually more interesting because the logic of the language works differently. And I think in the same way, having this language gave me access to worlds, to culture, to people that I would otherwise not have access to. And I also, I think it was to, m it benefited me that I, like I'm not like, I don't stand out, I don't look like a, I don't stand out in any way visually. I feel like I could, I'm like a blob that blends in. <laughs> um, so I think living in Beijing. You're not a blob. <laughs> Definitely I'm a, not a blob. I'm a You're like a fashionista. <laughs> <laughs> You're like 
straight up leather jacket over the shoulders. Yeah. Uh, and I just feel like I got to see, I was like a spy. I got to live this life that I felt like I left behind, this parallel life that I would have had had I not left China. Mm-hmm. And I think it made it gave me a lot of empathy towards people that I feel like are very othered in American culture and American literature written in English. You know, you can read 10 op-eds about the young Chinese, but you don't, they never get, you never get to feel them. You never get to know what aches from them or why they do the things they do, what their parents are like, what they want. And I felt like it was, I just needed to write these stories. So, and also I feel like being a Chinese person has changed. I'm so much like you, I'm. A, I feel very much like a global, a, pers- a global person in mm-hmm. the world, and not maybe representing a group of people at all. Yeah. So when you went to China, did you go and were you thinking, like you're there in your twenties and you're hanging out and you're meeting people? Are you thinking I'm I'm going to write about you? Are yeah. you collecting stories? I think that was that was why I wrote myself that email because I obviously was not. <laughs> uh, I uh, went to Beijing. It was actually really interesting because I wanted to go to get my MFA as an undergrad, and I was prepared to go. And then I went to Amy Bender's office hour, and I asked her to write me a recommendation, and she said no. Uh She said, come back in two years after you've done something with your life, and then you'll have something to write about. And I was devastated. I went back to my mom. I cried. I was like, no, no, like my plans. But it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because I came to my MFA program just like filled with stories. There was no no, um, week where I didn't have a new idea to write about something, to write about a, a situation or a person or make up a narrative. And the most interesting part of the, the story is Amy, I just saw Amy like a month ago and she has no recollection of this whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> she still to this day says I made it up. So I don't know, I don't know what that means. Amazing. Okay, I wanna ask you about some specific stories. Amazingly, you, I had like excerpts that I was gonna make you read mm-hmm. and you read most of them. Oh wow, yeah. really? Yeah, which kind of ruins my plan. <laughs> but um, but I also felt it was kind of serendipitous. But I think that what I, I there is one that you didn't read, mm-hmm. and it's from the story White Tiger of the West. Mm-hmm. And in that story, um, somebody comes from China to kind of perform this magic ritual mm-hmm. um, and, co- and co- try and convince these people of their kind of spiritual practice. And... They're in this moment of the story, they're eating a glass cup mm-hmm. to kind of demonstrate the power of their belief. Mm-hmm. And I, it's just a tiny little yeah. paragraph, but I think it's, I think it's an amazing kind of demonstration of what you're doing in that story. Yeah. So to set up, it is a qigong master demonstrating, doing a demonstration. Perhaps some of the younger men in the audience had come to see this kind of spectacle maybe hoping to be entertained by a few magic tricks. Maybe the dental assistant and the office worker thought Qigong was going to alleviate the pain of muscle injuries and showed up to ask a grandmaster for information on alternative medicine. Yet here they were, with aching backs and damp palms, watching a young man, much like themselves, daring himself to eat a glass cup. Nobody ventured to walk out of the room. Not, the hor- not one horrified face twisted the other way, 
They were locked in the trance together. Stop, stop, you're bleeding, said a concerned man. No, Tutu said, his mouth full of glass. That's just my lips. It's unaffected by the tea. The glass is not cutting me at all. Really, please stop. We get it, <laughs> said another. Tutu wiped the corner of his mouth with a sleeve, smearing a few drops of blood across his cheek. Rather than stopping, he raised his hand before continuing to chew and swallow again. It's, it's a chilling story. It's, it's fantastic. Um, I'm wondering what you were thinking about in that story, what, mm -hmm. what kind of you were trying to get at. Um, I, think, I think that the immigration is something I've been, um, that's this book, is concerned with because it's been so much a part of my life. Um, not just you know my own family's immigration, but just all of our all of our family friends. Everybody had to give up something to have this life. And I often, even when I was um, really young, I often wondered: one, was it worth it? And two, how do you know? And I felt so much empathy towards that decision that I think I've always been drawn to people on the cusp of change, on the cusp of making a decision that might or might not be right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in this case, I wanted to you know, demonstrate it very physically. Like someone making, possibly making a mistake, but if you believe it, does it make it okay? Well, like, will other people admire you for it? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And, and the fact that people are um, fascinated by the spectacle, mm -hmm. right? That there are plenty of people there who are yeah. approaching it cynically mm -hmm. and don't believe, yeah. but still want to see. Yeah. I found that really devastating. Yeah, I think immigration is an ugly process. Yeah. There's a lot of spectacles involved. And I always felt like um, it's just been so much a part of my life. And it's so, it's, I, I've witnessed its humiliations, you know, and I, there's just a part. There's just there's just something about this character that I really empathize with, even if he really f has no other <laughs> great redeeming qualities. Mm -hmm. And what if, one of the things that this book does is it ranges not just in kind of who is describing, but how it approaches those mm -hmm. descriptions. So there are stories that are they feel like fables. Mm -hmm. There are stories that are absolutely hilarious, like Home Remedies, mm -hmm. and there's a story called Future Cat where we're the character sends her cat into the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, there's, there are stories that feel very realistic, mm -hmm. but they all feel like stylistically quite different mm -hmm, and challenging, mm -hmm. and I'm yeah. wondering how you approach that. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with short stories. I've always loved short stories. Um, when, um, I think up to a few years ago, it was the only thing I read. Every year I would get all the anthologies, and I would read them all, and I would always find some new writers I had never heard of before, and then I would read their entire short story collection. I felt like short stories have offer a kind of intensity that is not available to novels that are more expansive. Mm -hmm. There's something, there, you know, there's the opportunity for nested stories, for parallels, to, for playing with form and hybrid forms, and I just, there was a part of me that thought, because I'm contractually obligated to write my next book, not short stories, <laughs> that I can't do another one. I felt like this is, this is my shot. I'm going to do it all in this book, everything I want to do. And I tried not to have um, a single story. I, I tried not to have two similar stories yeah. um, in, edit, in the editing process. 
uh, four stories, uh, there were 14 stories and I took two out because I felt like if I could do one of them better than the other one, then I didn't need the other one. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like that's something that I did on purpose. I, I wanted to show everything I knew about this form and I wanted to really play with it. Yeah. Just in case I never get to write another short story collection again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to turn it over, and we're we're gonna you guys can ask questions um, shortly. But before we do, you didn't read my favorite mm -hmm. section from that home remedies story, mm -hmm. which I think is absolutely hilarious. Um, so I wanted to make you read yeah. read that one. If you don't find it too. It's the solution for fag-hag fever. Okay. <laughs> Problem. Fag-hag fever. Puking outside of a gay club after too many tequila shots while your gay best friend rubs your now whale-sized back mechanically as if you're washing a minivan. <laughs> In your drunken rampage, you ask him, if you two were the last people on earth, would he consider a domestic partnership? Solution. Join a gym and torture yourself. Once you become skinny again, you can puke outside of regular clubs. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I want to commend you for how queer this book is. I love <laughs> that. There's my favorite story in here is mm -hmm. the first story I ever read of yours, which is about two synchronized swimmers who are uh, hopefuls for the Beijing Olympics, and they are like the they're about to make it, and they're on the cusp of being chosen by China to be mm -hmm. the Olympic swimmers and their faces on TV, and one of them kind of has a crush on the other one. I, yeah. I won't say more about what happens, yeah. but how'd that story come to you? That story is very, um, that story came to me uh, in a really roundabout way. I was uh, working um, for journalists during the Olympics, so most of the time they were just, they just needed me to take them to Peking Duck restaurants. It wasn't that. <laughs> Uh, wasn't that cutting edge journalism? <laughs> um, but there was, uh, I was following a reporter for the Chicago Tribune all day and we were doing like water sports and we were interviewing the um, American rowing team. Mm. So obviously he did not need me. It was just, we were interviewing guys who went to Yale who played the tuba, you know? <laughs> uh, and while I was waiting for him to conduct this interview, I was just sitting there watching the, like watching the, these like televisions of other sports going on. And there was a, a silent um, interview with these two little boys. They were synchronized swimmers. And it was just the way, I couldn't even hear what they were saying. It was just the way one of them was looking at the other one, their body language. I knew there was a love story there. Yeah. And I knew there was something really, I knew there was some hurt there. And there was some, so it was such a rich, place to explore. And even though it took me many years to write that story, and in, the, in term, I did a lot of research into like sports culture and queer sports culture. Mm -hmm. I went on a, you know, a diving board and looked down. <laughs> and lo lots of, I interviewed other competitive athletes, teammates, tried to figure out what the dynamic was. But I think in the end, what comes out from that story is the love story. And even though I've never been a competitive uh, synchronized diver. I do know what it's like to love somebody who doesn't love you back, you know, and, and how that, you know, and how you want to ruin their life. Uh, and I think uh, uh, when that comes, <laughs> and that, that part of the story comes from me. And I think in a sense, all of this, um, 
all of the stories in this collection, there's some emotional truth mm -hmm. for it about each story for me. And I always try to, um, you know, because it, I wrote it during s such a long period of time, uh, no story could exist in the way that I first wrote it, so including that one. And, you know, when I read, you know, if you read a piece of writing you wrote six years ago, some of it is going to seem really immature and like, you're like, I can't believe I did this. Um, and, but what would keep me working on it is if I could still move myself somehow, mm. if, if it hurt me, some part of it, that means some, something was on the line still. And that means I should keep working on it to make it better on that term. So that story took me a long time. And I think in the end, I found the emotional center. And yeah, I hope, and then I hope that, I, you know, I, I haven't keep, kept tabs on those two little boys, but I hope they're doing well. <laughs> okay, my last question is, how does it feel? This is like day five of book tour. Yeah. Like the book's out in the world. Mm -hmm. How does it feel? Uh, well, I talked to my first group of uh, students at Stanford last night, or two nights ago now, who read the whole book. And that was amazing. Uh, they were also born in 1998. <laughs> and they, I felt like they were so, they asked me such amazing questions. And I feel like my favorite one was that they asked me why put it all in a collection. What difference does it make? Because, you know, um, it's, I've published a lot of these stories in different uh, publications and at different times in my life. But I think all together, this is everything. I think about everything. Like there's something, there's something so complete about this for me because I just, I, all my dramatic preoccupations, like all my obsessions is here. And not just that, I think it's a way to write about these people that I know, these stories that I love and give them this dignity mm -hmm. to be, um, to be human yeah. for all of these characters to exist outside of kind of an op-ed and together you think you can see that they're flawed and they're funny and they're kind of bored and you know they do drugs and you know and they're they're great like they're <laughs> just like they're just like all of us and I hope that like together it it I gave me a sense from their reaction that they could see these people as people and that's the best feeling I've ever had. Yeah. Outside of this, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Well, let's get some more reactions. Yeah. Just people have questions? Yeah. Maggie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I don't think I was certain. I think it w I was embarrassed up until, like, up until I sold the book to say I was a writer. I feel like when people ask me at dinner parties, I sometimes said I was an English tutor, uh, <laughs> just so they wouldn't ask me any more questions. So I feel like in those, uh, I tried to do other things because I was afraid that that this was some outlandish dream or something. So those emails were not certain. They were just kind of like, please, please do it. <laughs> um, I think the question I asked myself from 2005, that one really hit me. Like, um, I wanted it to happen, of course, but I, I didn't know how hard it would be. Um, and now that I've, you know, now that there's a book with my name on it, I realize it's still really hard, but it's possible. <laughs> 
most afraid to include. Um, I wrote a story called For Our Die to the Max, and it's like uh, it's a story about these um, you know ri rich uh, teenagers who uh, there's a uh, they kind of beat up there's a violent act and uh, prison. <laughs> and a lot of lying. And I felt like I approached that story with the coldness of Brett Easton Ellis. Like, I'm, you know, uh, growing up, I was a fan of Brett Easton Ellis. I think I've read most of his books. And I never felt like I, I felt like these characters were perfect for that tone. But when I wrote it and tried to submit it, that the reaction was very polarizing. People were very angry for me, at me, for writing that story. Like, as if I were. Uh, offending them by portraying these uh, these people that have never been portrayed before in this light. But I, in the end, um, I kept it the way I wanted to keep it because I think the book, that's why it's part of the book. There's enough voices in here to know that this is not every voice, but I think this is a true voice and it deserves to be part of it, the conversation. Yeah, it's a totally chilling story about kind of affluenza and, and these mm -hmm. people who just have too much and lost their morality. Yeah. 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 Thank I've been trying to answer this question for like the last six months. I thought I would reduce it down to one objective sentence, one uh, academic sentence, and one narrative sentence. Um, I had it, but now I didn't write it down. I don't remember. But I think, you know, objectively, it's 12 stories of concern about love, family, and time and space. Uh, academically, maybe. Um, I think these stories occupy a space in a um, contemporary American literature after Yian Li and uh, yeah after Yian Li and uh, after Hajin uh, about a group of um, about people who haven't uh, been represented um, and narratively it is about I think narratively I I do care about. Us having a sense of conclusion for all of these stories. So I think it's narratively 12 journeys of uh, 12 journeys of people with problems. I don't know. Thank you. Somebody try to describe it and tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions?
questions? Yeah. Yes. Uh, vaguely. This seems like me. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm really happy with what's happening right now. I feel like I'm riding a wave of um, Asian American. Uh, culture makers and writers and I'm teaching a class at UCLA right now called the bad kids and it's all about this new generation of Asian American writing you know when I was in high school I could count on one hand the number of Asian American writers and I feel like most of these narratives were centered around immigration and parents um, not understanding their children and children wanting to be understood. I feel like that's so over now they're so redundant for me I, I don't really care about my parents understanding me. I just want to live a cool <laughs> life. And also, you don't need to be an immigrant for your parents not to understand you. There's culture and technology. No one is looking for this. This is understanding is not the critical problem of my life. So I think when I was teaching this class, I said I've been waiting my whole life to teach this class because I, when I was reading those books, I kept thinking, man, one day the bad kids are going to grow up and they're going to be the ones, th they're going to do drugs and they're going to be weird and they're going to write books and then I don't have to read this anymore. <laughs> So, uh, you know, so I think there's just like teaching this class like with, the, the, with my students, being able to talk about these kind of books and being kind of on the wave with these other writers, this is great. And I just, I'm not going to say I like every single Asian American voice being published right now, but I do feel like it's a very supportive community and the more voices, the better. You know, there's just, we just need a diversity of voices and um, I'm glad to be able to be one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, um, I did grow, um, so I grew up, uh, my parents are all here, so it's really cute. Uh, we, we had this house, we rented this house with another family, and um, basically anybody who knew us marginally from, uh, from China could come stay with us if they were immigrating to the States. So I met lots of aunties and uncles who were all telling me, you know, what the, uh, you know, that they were a doctor and now they have to make noodles or something, you know. But the, the, I, I felt like because I'm from that only child generation where, um, you know, I feel very much like an equal partnership in this family. And I felt that I felt that I all I was one of these immigrants, you know, and I I can never judge them. I always empathize so deeply with what they were going through, every decision they have to make, every decision they didn't make that happened to them, and so um, traveling back to um, China every year to visit my grandparents, I felt the same way with the people I encountered there. I don't know if it's because um, of my close relationship with my family or just like the way. The kind of uh, the kind of person that I am, but I think it's maybe this. This is the big project of my life to just under talk, ask people questions and try to understand what they do, and then it'll make. And there's n there's no way to judge them. You know, there's only ways to kind of make them more real, and that's m maybe the best part about writing and the best part of my life.
fine. Hi, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's growing. I think, well, to keep it together, I think the themes are what I'm using to keep it together and in the, um, in the way that uh, the sections are broken down. I feel like people can pick what they're interested in at that moment and read a, a story about that. Um, I don't know, in terms of writing about uh, different pe people that maybe like, maybe somebody that I'm, I'm not directly a Qigong master writing about a Qigong master, I think that's just, um, that's just the work of fiction, right? I'm, this isn't, um, it is just the practice of radical empathy of like putting on someone else's life and seeing how it works. Um, I think, I always say my writing is really not political at all because uh, I think, I used to say that, but now I think it is kind of a political move to write about Chinese people as people, to not have to describe this as some sort of radical statement about a culture or a, a people, just to just to make them people. So I think what uh, I tried really hard to not use, to always use uh, colloquialism that's true to the characters, but also never make the characters sound like they're speaking to a foreign language when speaking with each other because that they, they wouldn't know they wouldn't think that they would speak you know two people speaking together wouldn't need you wouldn't notice that they're speaking a foreign language so mm -hmm. i use that the english um, the kind of spoken english that i feel the characters are actually s speaking with the same kind of spontaneity and the same humor that they would speak in english it's just that now you're privy to this conversation where you otherwise wouldn't not, would not have known I think maybe we have time for one more. Oh, there was a, somebody's pointing at somebody else. Hi. What's a Qigong master? Um, well, yeah, I don't know. It's like Qigong is a, a spiritual, a Chinese, my parents are, uh, I spy, uh, okay, it's a, it's a spiritual practice and a, ta uh, uh, um, a, a master, a grandmaster would have supernatural, supernatural capabilities and you would uh, follow him in his practice. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, Diana. What would I say? What's the What's the future me email you're gonna write tonight? <laughs> to what To what age in the future? Oh man. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I, uh, 
have to think about that one. <laughs> I wasn't planning to. Now you're just putting me on the spot. I have to do it, you know, in the darkness of my own room. <laughs> yeah. Mm, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to translate them into Chinese. I feel like if I were to write in Chinese, I would write a different book. Um, I remember Yian Li was the first one that said that, and I was in Beijing at a uh, at a book um, like a book festival, and I was like, oh how dare you, you know, I don't understand why you would think that. And now I totally understand. I think Chinese language is, has its own capabilities, its own characteristics, and there's such succinctness in it. I'm, I'm not a great reader, but when I do read, I think, um, you know, the way that certain uh, phrases mean different things, and just that language has its own power, and these stories live in English. And also, I'm really happy that my parents don't get to read it. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, it's a great gift that you guys have given me. Uh, I feel like I can be completely uh, free and honest, and uh, I hope it's never translated into <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Let's have a round, another round of applause. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming, guys. Is that good? That's great, yeah. And I'm sure that uh, Juliana's going to want to sign books. And, uh, oh, we're going to have a cake with a book on it. The good book shaped cake. Cake and wine. Yeah, and wine. Tote bags. Yeah. Great. And uh, so stick around. I'll sign books. You can eat cake. So many yeah. good things. And Great. cherries, my mom said. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.